Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. So excited to be with you and invite you now to take your Bibles out and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Acts and Acts chapter number six. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can turn in one of the ones that's underneath the chair in front of you to page 96 in the back and you would find yourself located at at Acts chapter six. Now I wanna begin this morning by asking us all a question. Are you ready? Here's the question. How many of us are country and Western fans? Let me see the hands. If you're country and Western fans, All right, quite a few hands are up. And there's a good reason to be a country and Western fan if you live in the state of Oklahoma. Because our state has produced a lot of country and Western music stars. We have Garth, we have Reba from our state, we have Toby from our state, we have Blake Shelton, Carrie Underwood, Vince Gill, and also, Wildwood's own Kelly Coffee Cook, who's sitting right back there. She's right here with us this morning. Yeah, it's pretty cool to be from Oklahoma. You're a country and Western fan. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I wouldn't classify myself as a country Western super fan. But one thing I really like about country and Western music is it has very down to earth, realistic, everyday life lyrics. And some of those lyrics are very catchy. Number of years ago, an artist by the name of Colin Ray uh, put out a song entitled, That's My Story and I'm Sticking to It. Now, if you've never heard that song, it's basically a story that he's telling his wife, trying to really cover up some late night shenanigans that he's been about with the boys. And part of the lyrics of the song goes like this. Oh, that's my story. I ain't got a witness and I can't prove it, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. And when I think of the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, I think of the line from that song. Remember what's happening here? They are beginning to, the apostles and the disciples, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and he rose again. And they are finding what? Resistance that's coming upon them. Peter and John find themselves twice thrown into prison. Not only that, but Peter and John, we've seen in our study of the book of Acts so far, ended up being flogged because they were preaching the gospel. And that was not a small little thing. And we're going to see today as we come to chapter number seven that someone's actually going to be executed. They're gonna lose their life because they're preaching the gospel. And so when I look at the apostles and the disciples, I see them basically saying, with all this pressure, all this resistance on the gospel, I see them saying, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And that needs to be our response, too. Even if people aren't open to the gospel message, our response needs to be, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. We've been involved in a series of messages we've entitled Seeds. And we have those three little words, plant, scatter, grow. And that is the outline of the book of Acts. We're completing the first section, which is the plant 
section today. And the title I've given to today's message is The Church's First Martyr. And the church's first martyr is going to be one of a group of seven men we've already seen from our last time together two weeks ago. In chapter 6 and verse 5, seven men put forward, and one of them was a guy by the name of Stephen. Now, in the Greek language, the name Stephen is actually Stephanos, S-T-E-P, H-A-N-O-S. So when we talk about Stephen, his name in Greek is Stephanos. And we're going to see that word used a number of other times in the book of Acts. But it's used in a little bit of a different fashion. Uh, That word Stephanos in Greek was also the word for a victory crown. When you would win an athletic event, you would be presented with a Stephanos, a victory crown. And that's the same as Stephen's name. And we're going to see unfolding for us today that Stephen is going to be awarded a victory crown as the very first martyr of the church. Now, the section we have before us that takes up um, a good part of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 is the longest recorded sermon or message, if you will, in the book of Acts. Stephanos, Stephen, gives the longest message of anyone. And I want to give you an outline so that you can follow what we're going to be looking at today. We're not going to read a lot of verses from this, but we're going to work our way through it. If you take a look at what we have laid out for us in chapter 6 and 7, we have this. Number one, we have the conspiracy against Stephen in chapter 6, verse 8 through verse 1 of chapter 7. Then we have Stephen's retrospective where he goes back and brings up history of God's provision for the nation of Israel in chapter 7, verse 2 through verse 50. Then third, we're going to see Stephen's stern admonition in chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. And then we're going to look at the church's first martyr, Stephen, in chapter 7, verse 54 to 60. So that's the outline. Again, we're going to fly over it pretty quickly And then we're going to seek to draw some lessons, some life application for all of us from this section of God's word. So we're going to begin by looking at the conspiracy against Stephen. Look at chapter 6 and verse 8. Stephen was one of these seven men put forward. And it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. So we see Stephen here performing signs and wonders and miracles. And remember, he was commissioned by the apostles directly. They laid their hands on him. And so he is doing these miracles and signs, but while he is doing them, there were some men who stood up to oppose him. And they were from what was called the synagogue of the freed men. Now, I just want to remind us that there was a difference between the temple and a synagogue. There was one temple, but there were many synagogues. In the temple, you would go there primarily for worship, 
you would go to the temple primarily to make an animal sacrifice for sin. The synagogue was different from that. You would go to the synagogue, and at the synagogue, they would read the Old Testament Scripture. At the synagogue, there would be instruction given to people. There would be exhortation given to people. And it was in that forum that you would have discussion about the Word of God. One temple, many synagogues. In fact, some have estimated that there were in the city of Jerusalem 400 synagogues. Now, what they would do in the, in the city is that most people would go to a synagogue with people of similar background or similar preferences. And Aramaeus, the historian, tells us that some of the synagogues even had a guest house there, a little motel and some baths, because people would come from outside of Jerusalem and they would want to go to the synagogue and often they would stay in this guest house and the baths that would be available to them. Now, many of those who were in synagogues were Hellenistic Jews. Remember, they were the Jews who were not native to Israel. They were the ones who were out in the Roman Empire in various places, and they came back to Jerusalem. And some of those Hellenistic Jews had been slaves to Rome, and they had gotten their freedom. And having gotten their freedom, they found their way back to Jerusalem Now, remember, it wasn't necessarily their family's decision for them to leave. That was part of the scattering that went on with the tribes. And when these people who never wanted to be scattered and were maybe slaves had an opportunity, they were freed and they could come back, they came back, and you know that they came back with very strong feelings of defending Judaism. And that's the kind of people who made up the synagogue of the freed men. Now, what I find interesting in verse 9 is that some of those at the synagogue of the freedmen were from Cilicia. And you go, what's the significance of Cilicia? Well, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 39, we learn that a guy, we're going to see him more uh, this spring in in the book of Acts by the name of Saul, who later became Paul. He is from Tarsus in Cilicia. This was the group of people that Saul hung out with at the synagogue of the freed men. In fact, we're going to see at the very end of our our time today, in Acts chapter 7 at the end, guess who is holding the coats of those from the synagogue of the freed men? Saul is taking care of their clothes while they make Stephen the first martyr of the church. And so they rose up, verse 9, and argued with Stephen, verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They they couldn't debate the guy. And, And this just ties in with what Jesus said, what happened in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. We've referred to this passage before. Jesus said to the disciples before all this took place, when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and authorities... Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So it wasn't that Stephen was just so incredibly intelligent, although I think that he was. It was the Spirit of God at work in him, and they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. Well, what happens? Well, look at verse 11. 
And then they secretly, so they couldn't debate the guy, so they secretly induced men to say, oh, we have heard him, Stephen, speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to Stephen and they dragged him away and brought him before the council, the Sanhedrin, and they put forward false witnesses who said, this man, Stephen, incessantly speaks against this holy place, the temple, and the law. And we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Men and women, we have a shift here. And there is a shift in opposing the gospel to subterfuge. They can't debate with him, so they pay people off to falsely accuse him. And it's important for us to understand this is a turning point, one of the first turning points in the book of Acts, because in verse 12, it says that all with their lies and everything, they stirred up the people. Remember the people's response in general to the apostles up to this point? We saw it in Acts 2, we saw it in Acts 4, we saw it in Acts 5. The people were with them. But now it changes. They stirred up the people. They said, this guy, Stephen, he speaks against the temple. He speaks against Moses. He speaks against the law. And in verse 14, he says, we've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus, you know, it's not said with contempt in their voices, this country hick from Nazareth. And then they begin to twist the facts. We've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus is going to destroy the temple here, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Just a twisting of what Jesus said. Now, Jesus did say in John chapter 2 and verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But remember, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus did say in Luke 21, 6, there's a time coming when not one stone will be left upon another here. But he never said that he was going to destroy the magnificent temple that was in Jerusalem. They were claiming that Jesus was out to alter the customs which Moses had handed down to us. But Jesus really didn't say that. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, the law of Moses. I came to what? Fulfill the law of Moses. So they're lying. The subterfuge starts. And notice in verse 15, this is very fascinating to me. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council, the whole Sanhedrin, saw Stephen's face like the face of an angel. Now, when you see that, where does your mind go in the Old Testament? It goes back to Exodus chapter 34. Remember how Moses had been up on the mountain with the Lord receiving the law, and when he came down, there was this just glow on his face, a little message being sent by God to the Sanhedrin here. Stephen's not anti-Moses. Stephen is like Moses. Well, then notice the high priest says to him, with all these false accusations, this subterfuge and all the lies, he says to Stephen, verse 1 of chapter 7, are these things so? 
You've heard the charges. That leads us then to Stephen's retrospective, beginning with verse 2 down through verse 50. And and, and we're going to just fly over this now. I want to give you a handle on what was being said. But the thrust of what he's going to be communicating is God's faithful provision to Israel over the years. And what we're going to see Stephen do is he's going to speak very much like an Old Testament prophet here. And one of the themes that's going to come out in the sections that he pulls out of the Old Testament is the theme of the resistance and the rejection of the nation of Israel towards God. He's going to point out there's been a pattern in history of resistance and rejection. And I just want us to understand, as Stephen is sharing all this perspective from the Old Testament, there's all kinds of implications and insinuations here. He's making a lot of points that he knows they're going to pick up on that we might miss. So let's look at his retrospective. And what I find interesting about it is he begins it in chapter 7, verse 2, with the God of glory, and he ends it in verse 55 with the God of glory, Jesus. Interesting how he does that. And the first thing that he brings up in chapter 7, verses 2 to 8, is the story of Abraham, and he's going to to stress the roots of God's promised blessing to the nation. And again, we're not going to look at all of the verses or read all the verses, but, but there's important things to understand here. He starts to talk about the story of Abraham, and part of what he talks about is how God came to Abraham in Mesopotamia. And, and the point he's trying to make to them, in part, is God's working goes beyond geography. Remember, they were so fixated on Jerusalem and the temple. And he's saying, remember Abraham. God's working went beyond geography. Also, as he tells the story of Abraham here, Abraham, remember the story of Abraham? He trusted God when it seemed improbable. God said, you're going to have a son. I mean, you're past the age of having a son. And you're not only going to have a son, but all of your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. And he had to trust God for what seemed to be improbable. And there's, again, a a little bit of an implication there to the Sanhedrin. It's improbable that a carpenter from Nazareth would be the Messiah. But Abraham... Abraham trusted God even when it seemed to be improbable. Abraham, remember how Abraham followed God into an unknown territory? Part of the implication he's making to the Sanhedrin is this. Are you willing to follow God into unknown territory? And in chapter 7, verses 9 to 16, he he talks about the story of Joseph. And in, in Joseph's life, the rejected one becomes the Savior. Remember, he saves the whole family. He saves the whole nation as it was getting started. And he brings up the story of Joseph. And remember, the story of Joseph, we did that not long ago, was fueled by jealousy, right? There was jealousy against it. That sounds vaguely familiar, because the Sanhedrin was motivated by jealousy. And we learn in the story of Joseph that God was working in unusual, surprising ways. Remember, he ends up being, what, um, mischarged. He ends up in prison, and eventually he ends up being the number two guy in the entire nation. That's a pretty surprising turn. God was working in Joseph's life in unusual and surprising ways. And the irony in Joseph's story is that the one who was rejected 
by his brothers, the one they sought to harm turned out to be the Savior. Little implication there for the Sanhedrin. In verses 17 to 38, he talks about the story of Moses, and then the story of Moses, the rejected one. Moses was rejected by the nation, yet he becomes the deliverer who delivered them out of Egypt. And as he tells the story of Moses, remember Moses was born in difficult times, a very difficult time. They were under the thumb of Egypt when Moses was born. Same thing is true of Jesus. When Jesus was born, they were under the thumb of Rome. And God ordained Moses to be the deliverer of the nation. God said he's going to be the deliverer. And we learn in, in verse 25 at the end, yet the people of Israel didn't understand. And in verse 27, they said to Moses, who made you to be the ruler and judge over us? May that sound familiar at all, Sanhedrin? You know, God ordained Jesus to be the deliverer of the nation. and They didn't understand and they were questioning, Jesus, who made you to be superior over us? We learn in the story of Moses how God spoke through a burning bush. Remember that? The bush is on fire and God is speaking out of the fire. What's the, the lesson from that? God works in ways that will surprise us. Yes, Sanhedrin, when you're thinking about Jesus, God works in ways that might surprise you. And then look at verse 33. The Lord, speaking out of the bush, says to Moses, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What's that saying? That's communicating that any place that God is, is holy ground. And they were totally hung up with the temple. It was all about the temple and only the temple. And then in verse 35, he, he stresses the fact that the one who was disowned was the one that God sent to be the deliverer. Now, I'm telling you, men and women, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were understanding the insinuations. They were understanding the implications he was making. And I believe they were starting to fume at this point. Can't believe he has the guts to make those kind of implications. Verse 39 to 43, we have the hard-heartedness reviewed in Old Testament history by Stephen. And he goes back to the story of the wilderness. You remember what happened in the wilderness? The people refused to submit to God's direction. And what happened? They were excluded from experiencing blessing in the land. That whole generation had to die off. There's an implication there about refusing to submit to God's direction. Implication, you could be excluded from experiencing blessing by responding to Jesus the way that you are. I find it fascinating to me, totally fascinating, that he includes, as he talks about the hard-heartedness of Israel in verses 40 and 41, the story of Aaron. And remember how Aaron, who, by the way, was the original high priest, he's the one who started the priesthood. All the chief priests and all the high priests were aware that their original founder was Aaron, and what does Aaron do? In, in the wilderness, he, because the people are rebelling, he makes a calf idol. Why does he bring that out? He's saying, hey, chief priests and Mr. High Priest, 
your personal history is not without flaws. You know, don't sit there on your high horse. Even your founding father made an idol. And then in verses uh, 44 to 50, he talks about how God cannot be confined. And in this section, he talks about the tabernacle and the temple. And you remember, the tabernacle was the movable tent, and, and they would, inside the tabernacle, before there ever was a temple, they would do their sacrifices there. Here's what's interesting is he relates this in these verses. God was the one, God himself directed and commissioned that the tabernacle be built. But the temple, which way they were totally into the temple, the temple was not actually God's idea. Whose idea was the temple? Anybody remember? David is the one who came up with that idea. God directed and commissioned that the tabernacle would be built, but the temple was David's idea, and yet God even said to him, you're not going to have the privilege of building it. Your son Solomon would do that. And that's what he did. He's trying to stress this point. You guys are so hung up on the temple and God didn't even give you the idea for it. And then he stresses that God is way bigger than this temple that you're so trying to defend. Look at verse 48. He says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Now, God's presence was there in the temple, but he's not limited to some temple. He's way bigger than the temple. With all these implications and insinuations, now Stephen in verses 51 to 53, gives his stern admonition. And basically, this is what he's going to say to the Sanhedrin. You got me on trial. You are guilty. It's interesting. Stephen is called to defend himself, but he turns the tables and he levies spiritual charges against the leaders of Israel. And what we see in 51 to 53 is the vocabulary of the Old Testament prophets. Notice he says in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked. Now, he's not saying, hey, I know a number of you slept wrong the night before and you just feel a little bit... No, he's not saying that, right? He's talking about deep-seated resistance against God. You men who are stiff-necked and you men who are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Basically, he was saying to them, you are outwardly spiritual and religious, but inwardly, you are unchanged. There's no spiritual reality in your life. He's saying to them, truth is all around you, but it's never pierced your heart. What Stephen was saying to them is this, you accuse me? of rejecting Moses who received the law and you rejected Jesus who authored and fulfilled the law. He's saying, you accuse me of blasphemy? You are the ultimate blasphemers. And he goes on to say in verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. 
By the way, the righteous one is a messianic term right out of Isaiah chapter 53. And he's basically saying to them, the righteous one, you murdered him. He's saying you purport to respect the law of Moses, which prohibits murder, and you guys murdered the Messiah. Now, I am very sure that Stephen intended to carry on his message. I am sure he intended to get to the same thing that Peter did when he spoke two times before, and that is to get to the section, what you need to do is you need to repent and you need to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. I'm sure he intended to get there, but they don't ever let him get there. And that brings us to the church's first martyr in verses 54 to 60. Let's go there real quickly. Let's look at this. Now, verse 54 says, Now when they heard this, the righteous one you murdered, you purport to respect the law which prohibits murder, and you murdered the Messiah. And when they heard this, the New American Standard says they were cut to the quick. Literally, it says they were cut to their hearts. The New Living Translation says they were infuriated The voice says they boiled in fury. Their emotions explode. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, as I read that, there's something unusual about that. Did you notice what it is? We have Jesus as he ascends back up into heaven. We have it describing him as being at the right hand of God. But what is the posture that we normally see in the description? He is seated at the right hand of God. Here he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God, but he's standing. In part, I believe, ready to greet Stephen, the church's first martyr. Men and women, heaven's arms are open wide when death nears. Well, violence just completely erupts. They, they notice verse 57. It says, they cried out with a loud voice. This is just the word in the original language for screaming. They just start screaming at the top of their lungs, and they cover their ears, and they rush at him with one impulse. Did you notice that there is no, hey, it's time to conclude the trial now. Let's all go and, you know, have a little vote, what we think, guilty or not guilty. There's none of that. And verse 58 says, they drove him out of the city and they began to stone him. Literally, that's what it says. They began to stone him because it's a process. And that's a process of finding stones which are everywhere in Israel and you just pick them up and you begin to chuck them at somebody. And and you notice it says that the witnesses laid aside their robes. Why do you take your robe off? Man, I want to throw better. I'm going to get rid of the restriction here, you know. I'm going to really let them have it. Womp, you know. But what's interesting is who's protecting and guarding the coats, the robes? It's this guy, Saul, who's watching over their coats. 
And then in verses 59 and 60, there are two statements that come out of the mouth of Stephen that take us right back to the cross. Remember Jesus on the cross, Luke 23? Father, into my hands I, I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus on the cross, Luke 23. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Don't hold them against them, Father. We see the same thing coming out of the mouth of Stephen. Verse 59, as they were stoning him, he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees because he couldn't stand anymore after being hit by so many rocks, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep. The picture is his body went to sleep, but of course he went to be with the Lord Jesus whose open arms were ready for him. <laughs> you go through all that and you go, wow, you know, that's an action-packed section and I think it's important for us just to take a moment and pause, kind of catch our breath. And I want us to just pull back from everything we've seen and I want to draw some life application. This is what we can learn from what we have just covered. Life application number one. It is still possible today to be outwardly religious and be inwardly unchanged. There are people in our community, there are people in your neighborhood, there are people in your school, on our jobs, who are outwardly religious, but inwardly unchanged. There was a time in my own life when that was a description of me, being outwardly religious, but inwardly unchanged. That was, at a point in time, a perfect description of my wife, who was outwardly religious, but inwardly unchanged. And it's possible even for there to be people at Wildwood Community Church who are thinking in their minds, I attend church, I was baptized, I was confirmed, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. But the truth be, outwardly religious, but inwardly unchanged. That's why Jesus, when he talked to Nicodemus, who, by the way, was described as the teacher of Israel, the number one religious teacher in all of the, the nation. Remember when Jesus came to Nicodemus and he said to him, unless, Nicodemus, you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. I don't care how outwardly religious you are, what facts that you may know, Nicodemus, but unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And men and women, if you have never trusted in Jesus to be your rescuer from sin and judgment, today is the day. Don't let another day go by. The good news is that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. He took on the penalty that you deserved. And what he wants you to do is to see that it's not your own religious assets it's the work of Christ on the cross. And when you choose, as I did and my wife did, to trust in that, to count on that, to rest in that, to believe in that, 
That's when the inward change comes. Don't go into another day without trusting in Christ and his work on the cross on your behalf. Second life application. God is always faithfully at work, even when we don't understand what's going on. That's just all through everything that Stephen had to communicate. Think about Joseph, who had two dreams from God. You are going to be the deliverer of your family, and he's in prison. And he's got to be thinking, God, I don't understand this. But God is always faithfully at work even when we don't understand. Remember Moses? God told him, you are going to deliver the nation from Egypt. And he tried to express that in his flesh, and he ended up being rejected. And guess what happened next? Forty years tending sheep in the wilderness. Forty years. God said that I was going to deliver them from Egypt. Forty years I'm watching sheep. God is always faithfully at work even when we don't understand. Look at Stephen. This great guy, he's performing these miracles and wonders and everything. He's preaching this great message and everything, and he ends up being stoned. He's under a pile of stones, but God is always faithfully at work even when we don't understand. Because God had a little plan for this guy named Saul, right? Even when it gets dark, God has a plan. And I don't know where you are right now. I mean, we're coming off of one holiday going into another, but maybe in your life right now, darkness is just pressing in on you, and you don't really understand what's happening. But remember, God has a plan. God is always faithfully at work, even when we don't understand, even when it gets dark. He has a plan. Third, life application is this. No matter what we may be called to face, his sufficient grace can grant us peace. No matter what we may be called to face, And we have here in the book of Acts, religious persecution, and most of us would say, religious persecution, I don't experience that. We have people in Iraq and Syria that we know are experiencing that, but I'm not experiencing religious persecution. Or whatever we may be called to face. Maybe you have to face a verbal attack. Someone's verbally attacking you. Maybe someone's filed a lawsuit against you. Maybe someone is out there and they're misrepresenting your actions and your motives. Uh, Maybe someone's out there spreading unjust rumors about you at school or on the job. No matter what we may be called to face, his sufficient grace can grant us peace. That's why the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, draw near to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. No matter what we may be called to face, his sufficient grace can grant us peace. And by the way, the greatest thing we're ever called to face is death. And Stephen was called to face that. I want to read to you this little piece on death. It says this, Death is a cruel enemy. He robs the mother of her baby, the wife of her husband, the parents of their children, and the lover of his intended bride. Death is a rude enemy. 
He upsets our best plans without apology. He enters the most exclusive circles without an invitation. He respects no one. Death is an international enemy. There is no corner of the world that he does not visit. Balmy, tropical islands, majestic mountains, beautiful plains, sophisticated cities, and quaint villages, all are his haunts. Death is an untiring enemy. He continues his ghastly work day and night, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. He never wearies in his ceaseless rounds, gathering his spoils of human lives. Death is the greatest that we ever have to face. But good news, death is a vanquished enemy. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering and abolishing death for all who trust in him. Death to a Christ follower is swinging open the door of eternity through which he passes into heaven with his Savior. Heaven's arms open wide when death nears. And no doubt, Stephen would concur. Stephanos would concur with the words of a 1787 hymn entitled, How Firm a Foundation. I want to remind you of some of the words of that hymn. No matter what, we may face, even if it's death. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That so, soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Men and women, I believe those words. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for the word of God. What an incredible book this is, a book that is alive and powerful and is able to redirect people's eternal destiny. We thank you so much for the word. We know it's nothing more than a story about Jesus. And Father, I would pray that everyone who hears my voice will have taken a step to trust in him as their rescuer from sin and judgment. And then to have the confidence that no matter what they may face, his grace and his peace will always be there for them. We're grateful for it. We thank you for the opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. It's our story and we're gonna stick to it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.